Well, I have often said, Mel, where is my little stand? Do you know where that is? Oh, there it is. Thank you, Randy. I have often said over the last 10, 15 years, and I've said it with different levels of meaning, even personal understanding, but I've also, or I've often said that I think the single most important thing in our life, the single most important thing I can speak specifically for me in my life is, and this may sound trite to you, but just bear with me for a minute, the single most important thing in life is how God sees us. Now that makes all the sense in the world coming from the very theocentric background most of us come from. God who is on a throne, a throne that is not only a place to be worshipped but also a place to judge from. And if God is the source from whence we came, the result or judge to which we're going, and in the meantime that to which we're responsible or who we are responsible to, then it strikes me that it's very important how God sees us. A lot of us grew up, I remember Philip Yancey said something in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, when 15 years ago I was at a phase, uh, there, there was a stage in my life where people like Yancey and Campolo had a huge impact on me, and that impact has been lasting. But I remember Yancey reflecting on his own fundamentalist background, uh, made the statement, he said, there was a point where I knew God loved me, because that was more about who God is. God has to love. But he said, I, I wasn't quite sure that God liked me. Some of you smiled. I watched you guys smiled immediately because you feel that viscerally, right? You remember that feeling? God loves me, but I think personally it's because God has to love me, but I really feel like God can't stand me. God doesn't like me. Um, I, remember, I remember resonating with that so much. And, and of course the reason God didn't like me was because God knew me. And then you think, well, everybody else likes me because they don't know me, right? But if they really knew me, they, they, they would feel like God does about me. I remember I was reading in 1 John. 1 John was a liberating a book of the Bible for me for a lot of years. I was reading in 1 John one day in the third or fourth chapter, and there were just things about that book that stood out to me so strong, but one verse that perhaps has stood out to me more than any other, or at least at the, the, the top two or three, in 1 John 4, John makes a statement, or in the chapter 3, John makes a statement and says, you know what, God is God, and even if our hearts and heart in that place is kind of the center of emotion, these visceral ways that we feel life. He said, God's God, and even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. I'll never forget, Tanya, reading that. And I resonated completely with even if our hearts condemn us. You guys know what that feeling is to be self-condemned and to be self-loathing. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and Lee, God knows everything. I remember the, the, the slight wave of relief that rolled over me because I knew exactly what it felt like to live my life in this sense of unworthiness and God being sick of me and not liking me. And to have this writer know me in that moment and say, you know what, even if your heart condemns you, 
I didn't know what was coming next. But even if your heart condemns you, which I totally resonated with, God's greater than our hearts. And in essence, God knows better. God loves you and likes you even when you don't love you and like you. Because God is God. It was a huge thing for me. I could go back and I could just give you my own autobiographical sketch of this developing idea of, of God. But at the center of my own view of God was this issue of how does God see me? I wasn't really at a point where I was thinking too much about who is God or what is the nature of God. I was pretty settled that God was that, I often say that Burl Ives in the sky, the, the grandfatherly Santa Claus type. And the question was, how does God see me? Out of my own personal journey, and I, and I shared it a long time before it was anywhere near settled. There were years that it was, it was very difficult because I convinced a lot of other people about God's love and mercy, benevolence and kindness and the nature of God when I myself wasn't convinced. There was nothing duplicitous about that. Um, I, I, was, I, I suppose the high octane fuel that my engine ran on was my own personal angst. I preached desperately to other people to try to convince myself. I lived vicariously through the eyes of those that I was able to convince, those who perhaps had been less wounded, those perhaps had less trouble. And it was, it was relieving and it was also embittering to get other people over the hump and never be able to get myself over that hump. It was, it was the, the words of the, the accusers to Jesus, physician heal thyself, and I, and I scarcely could. But continue to preach I could, continue to teach and continue to share others. As my friend A.J. Levine says, at times it's a knowing. When knowing fails us, it's a believing. But sometimes belief is even difficult for us and in the absence of belief, we hope. And even when hope drains out the bottom of my feet, she said, I still dream. And in the end, it's the only dream worth dreaming. And I, I did not have knowing, I scarcely had believing, I had lots of hope, but even in the absence of hope, the one thing that I can say about me, even in the most dark hours of agnosticism, the agnosticism was always reverent and longing and dreamy. And I never quit dreaming about a God who loved. I, I never quit dreaming about a fellowship like this. I never quit dreaming that there could be peace in the heart of a prodigal as the father soothed them and said get a ring and get a robe and get a fatted calf and so out of my own personal journey my own efforts to heal myself I've spent my career the last 32 years but specifically the last 15 to 20 years especially trying to convince people that God's vision or perspective on them was beautiful loving and safe and somewhere along that way, people ask me all the time, they say, when did it happen for you? I don't know. I, I have scarcely had epiphanies in my life, but I have had a gracious, arduous process. And there may be a few linchpin moments in that process that I can point to, but really those moments pale in comparison to just the long healing process that never has really yielded a eureka moment where I could stand and say December 14th, 1999. But I can look back from this place with some sense of peace and say, I don't know where it happened and when it happened, but it finally has 
Chris, it's finally settled in and I'm at peace here. I have a sense that God's vision of me is beautiful, loving, and safe. I often, as I release that statement, I often follow it. You know, the way Jesus said the first commandment is this and the second commandment is like unto that. I often follow it with a like unto that. And I say, if that's the first most important thing in the world, how God sees you, not even how you see yourself, because even if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart and knows everything. But the second most important thing in this world after how God sees us is how we see God. Man, do, do we have to pause long here to reflect on our world? The nature of religion, the nature of strife, the interplay of geopolitics and religion, the interplay of God and war, the things that we do in the name of God, the signs that we hold, the ways that we picket, the people that we kill, the land that we take with divine manifesto, does it take us long pause to realize that the way human beings see God has a deep impact on this world and this universe? Roy, the way people see God can take a minister who's ministered for years and years and literally say you no longer are credentialed because you baptized a person in the wrong way. Not to exploit your story, but just thinking about our own journeys. The way people see God. I didn't know you could baptize a person in the wrong place. And yet we do these things. We, we, we defend ourselves. As I, I've often uh, mentioned Don McCullough's book, The Dangerous, or rather The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. As George Bernard Shaw, probably quoting Pascal, famously said, God created man in God's image and we gloriously return the favor, right? It's called anthropomorphism. It's called projecting onto God our own identities. But we do more than project onto God our own identities. We project onto God our causes. We have needs, we have desires, we have perspectives, and we build a God to sustain those. We build a God to undergird and vindicate those if we're not careful. And that's why we fly religious flags in mast beside political flags because we need God to be like us. We need God to be on our side. We effort to be on God's side, but really subliminally, if we're not careful, we're really not efforting to be on God's side. We're efforting to get God on our side. As Henry Blackaby years ago in his wonderful little book, Experiencing God, which was revolutionary for a lot of us evangelicals at that time, said, we are so busy trying to get God to bless what we're doing when instead we should be finding what God is blessing and get in the middle of it. Instead of trying to employ God on our side, get on God's side. That's why I say the second most important thing in this world after how God sees me is how I see God. Because how I see God, how I see the nature and the ground of all things deeply impacts 
how I see myself. And how I see myself and how I see God deeply impacts how I see others. I've said this before, and it is such practical, anecdotal hyperbole, and yet it's not because this stuff happens. I remember Jeff preaching for a, a, a church in Oklahoma, an old fundamentalist Pentecostal church, and this is an aberration. This is not who Pentecostals were, but I remember preaching for this minister, and he had a wife who was very subjected, four steps behind, prairie dress, that flinched when he talked. And he was this robust, loving guy that was so great, just took up a lot of space in the room. But with her, there was always this flinch in her. And then only to find out years later that he physically abused her. He physically abused her, and I personally was one who challenged him on that. And his defense, Lee, he looked at me and he quoted two scriptures. The first was Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Mike. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Think about it. He's Sarah, he's defending physical abuse against his spouse. And, and, and it's a quote. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then immediately, because this is the way doctrines are built, dangerous doctrines, he jumped to an entirely different text in the book of Hebrews, from Ephesians to Hebrews. Those whom he loves, Christ has left us an example. Those whom he loves, he chastens and scourges. And if he did not love them, then the old King James said it harshly, a B word that we can't use. The newer versions cleaned it up and said, you are an illegitimate child. Two scriptures put together and insanely, a minister is able to beat his wife because husbands are supposed to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. And the way Christ loves the church is those whom he loves, he chastens and he scourges them with whips. And then after they have been scourged, they, with great love and respect, love the one who has scourged them because it has saved their soul from damnation. How we see God, how we see Jesus, how we see our creator impacts the way we see ourselves, those around us. The world and the worlds around us. As a matter of fact, our perspective on the nature, this is why we're doing what we're doing. So a young man in a, in a, in a fundamentalist congregation can look and say, I'm not the only one thinking this. There are better ways to think about God. As a matter of fact, our perspective on the nature of reality, is reality a creation of a creator or is it self-creative in force? Is it self, is it in some strange, mysterious way a part of the creator? Is reality still an unexplainable mystery that leaves us all little more than reverent, grateful agnostics as we wait for a capacity to understand the mystery that is unfolding around us little by little? Or is this reality that we live in the direct outgrowth of a benevolent decision by a giving and good being and or force that we variously name God 
creator, ground of all being, the divine, the holy other? These are huge questions and they have a deep impact on our world. And as awry as religion can be, and as ineffectual as often religious structures can be, I am personally grateful for synagogues and temples and churches, religious structures who are still efforting to get people together like we are together to get today to facilitate a conversation about what is the nature of reality, who is God and who are we, and how can we make this world a full and better place. In response to our SWAT surveys, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, at a very pivotal hour in the life of our church, a time that is obviously a time of transition and unsettledness, and yet a time of great hope and excitement. We read your SWAT surveys. You wrote copiously and we read copiously. And the first thing that we did in response to those SWAT surveys or one of the first things we did, the most overt things we did was we created a series and it was our last series that we just spent four weeks on. Because this church, not just the people who are in this building and not just the people who are out watching today, but the need, the vacuum that exists in this area, the vacuum that exists in this area that is exactly the shape of what a church should be in this area. Even before we are that, there is something that is called Grace Point that is even bigger than the people and what we presently are. It is the vacuous shape that is pressing and needing and begging for somebody to press into these matters and do the work that we're called to do. As a church, this staff, our leadership, and this congregation has been craving clarity on who we are theologically, but not just theologically, but principally who we are. And we started where we believe that we needed to start, and that is in this series, as we move toward fulfilling this longing for clarity, we got as raw as we could possibly get. Melissa and I stood before this congregation. Anna joined us at times. This leadership stood in front of this congregation and said, we have nothing unless we have clarity and disclosure and if God and Jesus are still centrally important to us, and if we are leaders in this congregation, then you deserve to know how we feel about God and Jesus. And we said it as plainly as we could. And it seemed that the courage spread throughout our congregation, and we spent the last four weeks wholeheartedly, honestly, and humbly discussing who we believe God, who we believe Jesus to be. And most of us now, I've been hearing this over and over, most of us now have at least a better, a clearer perspective on the spectrum of thought as it relates to God. The spectrum of thought that exists within Christianity and specifically our ilk, progressive Christianity, as it relates to Jesus. And not only do we have a clearer perspective on what it means to be pantheistic or panentheistic or theocentric or deistic, to see Christ creedly as the second person in the Trinity, or as the Son of God moral exemplar who came to show us how to live a life, or as that spectacular human who found the Christ consciousness that, as Richard Rohr said, the Christ is bigger than a fleshly body. It is creation itself, and stepped into that and now leads us to find that own, that consciousness until we can finally say with Paul that it is Christ in us, our hope of glory. Or if he is simply and majestically the great religious hero that is more than the grain of a fleshly life but is the bushel of longing and divine projection that all of us have that 
often finds itself settling on a hero and then directing back to us and saying, this is who you can be. Which of those Jesuses? Man in this church, this has been an unsettled time for me as we did this disclosure and as we worked through this. It was very relieving when we got your numbers back because we realized you guys were crazy too. And it was very comforting to us. But I remember as I reflected pastorally on all these things, I, for the first week or so, I, I dreaded phone calls and emails. And One of the men in this church that I had projected, because we do judge and assess one another, even if our hearts are right, Lucas, we can't help but doing an assessment. I kind of knew in my mind where Lucas was, sitting over at about a negative 14. No, it's not negative 14, it's a negative one. But We've spent enough time, we all just know one another. And this one fellow that sits not far from Lucas, who's been a good friend to me over the last five or six years, I knew he was a, Jeff, I knew. I mean, think about this. We're not Baptist and Methodist around here anymore, Protestant or Catholic. We're threes and sevens now. So I just want to say again, the quicker we can forget our numbers, the better off we're going to be. It was a nice tool, now let's let it go. But this particular fellow I knew was a nine, 10, maybe even 11. And this good man, this brilliant professional, 60-year-old fella calls me, my friend calls me, and, or emails me and says, these last couple of weeks, I can't remember the adjective he used, but he said they have in some way wrecked me. And he said, would you go to coffee with me? And man, I've been to a hundred of those coffees, you know, it's those coffees that it's not you, it's me, and it's the conversation on the way out the door. And this was a guy, I don't want to lose anybody here, but this was a guy I was like, oh man, because I knew he was a 10. And I knew this was going to be more than he could take. I knew. And Aaron, we go out to coffee and we sit down and I'm already wincing because I don't want to hear him say that he's not going to make it here with us. And he... Carolyn, he leans across, and the first words out of his mouth are, this series has wrecked me. And then he said, but I mean that good. And he started talking about his grandma and his mama and the church that he came from and all the pressure he's always felt. And he looked at me and he said, I finally made peace with myself. I'm a two and a half. And I'm okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how relieved personally I was in that moment, but it was even bigger than that. Oh, the undue religious pressure. I mean, this is a 60-year-old, incredibly successful man, and yet looking over his shoulder in that moment still at mother and grandmother and all the allegiances, sentimentally and nostalgic, that we, that we all have that are so hard. We not only have a better perspective abstractly on the spectrum, but to watch a grown man do more than just embrace a particular theology, but embrace his own power and dignity. To say, this is who I am and here I stand. And to have a congregation that would espouse that and foster that and give people that opportunity. Now, with all of that done, we are excited to move in an incarnational direction. 
And by incarnational, by incarnational, I mean to flesh out all of these abstractions and spiritual nutrients and ideas that we've been taking in. As Parker Palmer wonderfully said in Let Your Life Speak, that marvelous little book that if you haven't read, you need to read it. I quote him often. But Palmer said, it is amazing to me that a religion like ours that is supposedly vested in the base idea of incarnation, right? Jesus was called the incarnation, the fleshing out of God. Palmer said, isn't it strange that a religion like ours that is so steeped in the idea of incarnation gets so readily lost again and again in disembodied concepts? That's a mouthful, but it deserves saying again. Our base is incarnation, to flesh out things, and yet we lose ourselves in the ether, the ethereal, the abstract, the esoteric, the disembodied concepts of ancient theologies. We can't celebrate the baptism of a baby because it wasn't done in the right place. I remember preaching over on the border of Oklahoma and Arkansas, and I was with the pastor one day driving down the street, and as we were driving down the street, there was a church there, and it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. It was set back from the road, and the sides of the church and the back of the church looked beautiful with a really pretty steeple and a sign out front. And Jason, the problem was it had particle board all the way across the front. It literally looked like somebody had chopped the church in half. And you're seeing just particle board plywood. And I asked the pastor, I said, what? happened to that place? He said they literally had a church split. <laughs> they cut the thing in half, Joel, moved half of it down the street. <laughs> and it had something to do with how the Lord's Supper was served. And I know that sounds like caricature, but these aren't caricatures. This is us. This is our history. They saw the church in half. And as someone brilliantly said, we are arguing over place settings and how many forks and which the larger or the smaller fork goes on the outside while the world is starving to death. So we are excited here to move incarnationally now, to get away from just abstracting and trying to settle what we think about the Bible and how we think about God and who we think Jesus is and to literally metabolize theory into flesh and bone. What else is it for? What a lovely text in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. God had an idea. In the beginning was the Logos, employing the great Greek Plato's idea of this wonderful form, this wonderful blueprint, this wonderful map of what could be. In the beginning was the Word. When God was there, God had a passion, God had a heart, God had a Word, God had a logos, God had a blueprint, God had a theory, God had an idea, God had a hope, God had a dream. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Listen to this, the Word was God. Mother Teresa said, there came a point in my life where my passion and my purpose and my ministry became so centrally who I was that the two could not be separated. 
to get me out of Calcutta, to get Calcutta out of me would have killed me, she said. I would have bled out on the table. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, the plan of God wasn't just with God, it was God. God was the plan. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by God. And in God was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shone in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And the Word, and the Word, and the Word, the plan, the dream, was written down and printed in a book and leather-bound with little pieces of silk that mark the place. No. The Word was made flesh. And any word that is worth its salt, any blueprint, any religious plan, any dream, any longing, any belief, any knowing, any word that is worth its salt, if it only remains a word, black letters on a white page, abstractions to be thrown around, letters juxtaposed against one another, things that divide us, ideas that separate us and make us all churches and babies in half. To use Solomon's example. Any word that stays only a word, it is so strange. Perhaps it was the beauty of the map that enamored us. But the map at one point was only beautiful because it led to a beautiful place. It served its purpose. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. <laughs> you got a book and you figured out how to read the book. You made a living out of knowing the book, the abstractions. You search the scriptures for in them, in the book, in the Bible, you think you have eternal life. But Jesus said, but these are they which testify of me. And you've become so lost in the beauty of the book and the colored pictures and its pages that you never look up to see the face. You've become professional cartographers, map experts who read maps and know maps and build beautiful maps. But the point of a map is not to be a cartographer. The point of a map is to get somewhere. And when you get there, you let the map go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, engrafted, bled into us, ate with us, grieved with us, celebrated with us. And you are the body of Christ. We are able now to move away from years and years of reflection and navel-gazing, important stuff. Who is God? Who am I? Who are you? And to new and vibrant questions, to quit circling that same mountain, but to turn northward. And instead of asking ourselves, who is God? The question now is, how do we relate to God? Instead of simply asking, who are we? Settling into who we are and saying, okay, how do we relate to ourselves? Aaron, I, I think the healthiest thing I will do in this place over the last few years and the next couple of years is come to your embodiment ceremony. I know how to stand up here and preach about things. I know how to abstract about this stuff. I stand
still don't know how to close my eyes and move my body. There's still a little boy in me that believed the body was bad and certain parts were really bad and you certainly don't dance because that's sexual and you know sex is that dirty, nasty thing you save for the person you love. I don't know how I'm going to close my eyes and move my body. But I don't really want to spend a whole lot more time asking who am I in Christ. I think I'm peaceful about who I am. I may not understand it all, but I'm, I'm able to get away from the book now and just dance. I don't know who those people are exactly, and I don't know fully what I mean by they are the sacrament of God. And the ultimate sacrament is not blood and wine, but it is as much as you've done it under the least of these, you're doing it unto me. I don't know the full brilliance of that, but I know enough that it's time to quit talking about it. It's time for the word to be made flesh. The questions have got to move from who is God who am I? Who are others? What is this world? What is our planet? And the questions have got to be now, how do we relate to God? How do we relate to ourselves? How do we relate to others? How do we relate to this world and planet? What do we do? And when I put my tongue in my cheek and say, he is going to say, well done, not well believed, I do understand that it is our beliefs that drive our doing. But brothers and sisters, we have spent a lot of time here. We have come to great peace. I don't want to know if you're a 2.5 or a 5. I just want to know what are you going to do with it? What does it mean in terms of how you relate to yourself, how you speak to your children? The question is practical now. How do I actualize? How do I live? And of course, this place will always have as a part of its structure, any good institution should, either academic or religious or artistic or medical, all good institutions should have at least a part of their place that is dedicated to laboratory and exploration. There should be a part of this place that is dedicated to classroom. But my God, may our classrooms and may our laboratories never be as large as our hospital and our surgeries and our rehabs and the places where we can dance and make love and experience grace betwixt and between one another. We will never quit exploring the grand mystery. We, we will move beyond the solitary pursuit of exploration, intellectual exploration, lest we fall pray to this wasteful navel-gazing that will bury us as just one more recalcitrant, stuffy denomination. So as we move deeper into the beauty of life and how and why it is to be lived and enjoyed, as we spread our wings and as we start looking beyond who is God, to what does that mean? I hope over the next few weeks, even as we move into the Lenten season, that we will take time to ask ourselves the questions, how do we relate to God? I, I think even before we can really settle the peaceful questions of how we relate to ourselves and others, there is this issue for those of us who come from a theistic background. How do we relate to God? How does God relate to us? Specifically, I've been thinking this week a lot about prayer. 
thinking, I've been thinking in terms of the spectrum. In terms not only of how we see Jesus, but how we see God. There are people in this room who approach the ground of all being and the nature of God from a very pantheistic place. Creator and creation for them are less separate and more enmeshed and if not identical, at least Siamese in nature, conjoined. So there is a sense, there is a good number of people in this congregation who really don't spend a lot of time teasing out creator and creation, but they allow them to mysteriously settle into one thing. And I wonder for those of you who experience God in that way, how do you relate to God? I wonder sometimes, Dale, when I take time and say, let's just pray right now, what's that do to people in the room? I want you to know one thing, it doesn't do the same thing to everybody. The people sitting beside you respond very differently than you do. If people are panentheistic and God is other than creation but infused in creation, What's that mean? I sat with Stephen Martin this week. Stephen's a wonderful young man in this church who has had a really tough last couple of years, specifically his mother, this deep love in his life, has battled cancer, pancreatic cancer for the last two and a half years. And Stephen and I were just over a bagel earlier this week. We were talking about prayer, and he's a person of much prayer, and he loves prayer. And I said, could you, could you tell me how you approached your mom and her cancer just from a perspective of prayer? Because I know how it used to work, the whole intercessory deal where God is a satellite in the sky and I'm here and the person's over there and I've got to project up a perfect beam to get the satellite to, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You got to pray and say, hey God, Sister Versi's in room 202 and God's like, let me write that down before I forget that. Now, which hospital was it? You know, you're giving God information and you're cajoling God and moving God. Remember that? Anybody beside me remember storming the gates of heaven and holding God accountable to his word? Remember that? I never got that. I've got to go in and say, now listen here, mister. You promised, right, Chris? You promised. So you, God had to be held accountable, you know. Storming the throne of grace. So I know how it used to work. Oh, God, pastoring through the years, you know, watching a family try to figure out how to navigate a four-year-old's leukemia and how to wrap their mind around the possibility of life without her, watching a four-year-old wrestle with IVs and hair loss and a gangrenous rectum from the agony that she went through physically. God. And as if their loss wasn't enough, watching the mother and the grandmother fast for 21 days, cotton, and then at the end of it when the baby still dies, they not only lost the baby, they lost themselves and they lost God because they knew it was either God's fault or their fault because somewhere in this intercessory model somebody had failed and they finally realized there was only two directions to go, which many have gone, bitter toward God for failing them, or into the most utter nihilistic despair for failing their child and not being a good enough prayer warrior. God, there's got to be a better way to think about God. So when I say let's pray, is, is it intercessory? 
And I'll tell you what a lot of us do. We, we can't fall totally into the despair. It doesn't make sense to fall into the despair of I failed and there's just no way of really conceiving God. Honestly, for me, I have never been angry at God. I would be an atheist before I'd be angry at God. I'm not better than anybody. It's just the way my brain works. If God is a big SOB in the sky, then I don't believe in God, frankly. And it's just the way I, I don't. So when people are really angry at God, I just never have resonated with that. It just, I, it makes... It makes no sense to me that God could be bad. It makes more sense to me that there might not be a God than there's a bad God. That's just me. So I, I've never really battled with being mad at God. and follow, I, I, It's easy to fall in despair about how bad I, maybe I failed in the prayer process. But the relief at first for many of us who don't want to go either of those roads to oblivion spiritually, those futile, ineffectual roads... A lot of us have said, okay, okay, it's not that extreme. God's not bad and we didn't fail. God just doesn't work that way. And we enter into this season of maybe Christian deism. You know, deism, God winds the thing up and just totally lets it all play out and has no involvement. And, and, and I lived like that for a long time. We, we call that practical atheism. You say abstractly, Joel, that you believe in God, but practically you live like God doesn't exist. At least the old God that you used to know. Anybody ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. Practical atheism. You have all the abstract ideas, but you never, you don't do anything because you just don't have a sense that you know how it works. So you just kind of give up. Practical Christian atheism. Tons of people are there. Tons of people are there. I know when a minister writes to us and says, Mel, that message, Stan, what y'all are doing. I know I was that guy. I was in the cloth for 10 years sincerely, and I don't know that I prayed for a whole decade. And it wasn't because I was flipping my nose at God. It wasn't because I was, it wasn't because I didn't want to. It's just because I just gave up and I did not know. I remember hearing a wise man say, when a relationship begins to break down long before it gets to plates flying and curse words and screaming and damning. There is, that, there is that beginning when you pass your spouse in the hall and you don't look in their eyes. Just those little foxes that begin to come into a relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody's screaming yet, but you pass in the hallway shoulder to shoulder and don't really look that has happened to so many Christians so many religious people in relationship to God long before anybody's fasting and children are dying long before there's plate throwing and screaming and long before people are bitter at God and bitter at themselves for failing and screaming at the divine long before that there's just this cold stagnant sense of this Bible that you feel so guilty that you don't even know how to read anymore and when they say pray you you close your eyes and if you're really honest the only thing you can really get out is I have no idea what to say I have no idea what to say because I have no idea who you are I have no idea who you are 
And there's that sad period for so many of you, for so many of us, of just practical atheism, where we know that the old way of doing it doesn't work, but we're like the trapeze artist who has let go of the secure, but we haven't found the next, and we are in no man's land with no net beneath us. It's that period of letting go of the side of the boat before the water holds you. There's that awkward letting go and not believing, and it ends up being this period of non-prayer, non-connection, non-intimacy with the divine. And yet now upon reflection, I realized then, Lee, that I was praying the whole time. My hunger, my longing, my dreams, I was infused with prayer. And as I've worked through this period of coming from a base of exaggerated interaction where we literally, we literally believe we could tell God to do anything and if we prayed right, God would heal the chip on our windshield, pay off the bass boat, heal our child, whatever it was, remember? Get the IRS off of our back if we did it right. Remember, that's hyper-interactive mode. We manipulate God to doing what we want. Genie in the bottle, three wishes. Rub it right. When that drained, we, we go to this other side of, at best, deistic, at, at worst, atheistic. It just, nothing's there. What are we doing? Little by little, for me, peacefully in terms of prayer, and I'll leave off with this today, and then we'll just kind of explore more next week. But little by little, for me, I've begun to recognize that this hyperactive, interactive God always intervening in the natural order of the universe, though that model I do not believe is the nature of reality. The extreme of Jeff total uninvolvement is equally dissatisfying to me. I think there is a difference between intervention and involvement. And while I may not see God as the intervening, come in on a white horse and save the day if we get the prayer right, while I do not see God often, and this is 32 years of ministry, 40, almost 49 years of life, the first quarter of a century of that in a very Pentecostal movement where God was absolutely held responsible to always be interacting and intervening, I have seldom seen God superimpose or circumvent the natural laws of the universe. And the few times I think I have seen God circumvent the natural order of the universe, it has caused more confusion for me than it has caused peace because I can't figure out why me and why this little silly thing when there are 10,000 children starving, how is my prayer causing God, and you just have to leave it alone. But it also is very dissatisfying for me to move to this place of saying, okay, because God does not interact and intervene like that, then God is not involved at all. And little by little, through views of God and Jesus, I am coming back to a place of prayer. And when Stephen this week said to me, it resonated so much with me, that prayer seems less like intercession 
and more like mutual participation with the divine. Oh. Instead of God being off somewhere having to come in and save the day, what if God is so infused in the fiber of our being? What if little by little through the years and centuries and millennia, past and future, we are finding out that what we have called miracles are literally just us accessing the divinity that's already inside of us? And these are less miracles and they are less paranormal and metaphysical and supernatural than they are us simply exploring the full depths. Stephen's mother was soon weeks, months to die with pancreatic cancer. And this young man who comes from an intercessory prayer background where you storm the gates of heaven and get God to do something for this mother that you obviously love more than God does. <laughs> Stephen said, I remember sitting down with her and just laying my hand on her body and saying, Mom, this is your cancer. Those cells are yours. This is your body. And these are cells in your body that have forgotten. And he said, I thought about what you teach about the prodigal, how the prodigal's journey was not a journey to becoming something he was, and it was a journey of simply remembering who he was. And Jeff, he said he put his hand on his mom's body, think about this as prayer, and said your cells have forgotten because what cells should do is they should grow, they should reach termination, and then they should yield themselves to the next cell and transfer life because that's the nature of life. But your cells have forgotten, and in their forgetfulness they are glutting, and they are hoarding, and they are clotting, and they are giving up. They will not die, and they are getting bigger and bigger because they will not give themselves yieldingly to the next. And he said, Mom... Why don't we just go inward now? And why don't you begin talking to the cells of your body about remembering who they are? Two and a half years pass and she still lives. People say, well, is it a glorious story if she didn't die? Well, that's not true because we all die at some point. But her death was quite different because after two and a half years of reminding her cells and using medical science to remind her cells, chemo can remind cells, chemo can be prayer. It all can be prayer if we simply recognize the enmeshment of the divine and the human, the creator and the creation. And he said, we were finally at one of these stages where there was a new treatment and it was gonna be the next thing to keep reminding these cells. And he said, I was telling my mom about it and we were thinking about it. And he said, my mom looked at me very peacefully and said, you know, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. And he said, I remember thinking, but you're supposed to, you've got to. And she said, no. And he said, it began to settle on me. No, no, she's not. And I looked at him and I said, wow. She actually, in the end of this frame of her life, because where we are right now, we're just in a frame of our existence. What she literally did at the end of this existence was after talking to her cells for two and a half years, Aaron, about remembering, and what they needed to do was learn when it's time to let go and die and let the other, she realized that she was a cell in a greater body. And she finally looked at all of those cells she had been preaching and teaching to, Lee, and she taught them with action. And she said, I've been telling you need to remember, you need to let go when it's time to let go. And as a cell in this great universe, she looked at her body 
and she showed them how and she let go. And her life force transferred into another cell only God understands fully where it is. I can buy that as prayer. And for me, deep and embedded divine involvement and holding is so much more beautiful, Jeff, than the white horse God who comes in every now and then and whimsically takes care of my check in the mail while children starve. So as we move forward, the question will be, certainly how does this impact the world around us? But as we go out to be social activists and as this church commits itself to reshape the social landscape of our world and to mitigate suffering and elevate joy, I hope we start at home and we don't spend our time helping others to distract ourselves from our own disease. And we make peace with God and there's nothing more that I would like than for us to be known as a people of prayer and of people who dance and of people who make peace with themselves and God and then carry that dance of prayer to a world that certainly will be made the better and healed by the grace that has found its way into our experience. Can you say amen? Let's close with prayer. Sweet, precious, Reality undergirding reality. Glorious, holy one. Whose name I still call God. Thank you for being in me. Thank you for us being in you. For in you we live and we breathe and we have our being and our cells repair themselves and die. You have made peace with us. May we make peace with you. And may that peace spread to this world until war shall be no more. Abuse shall be gone. Inequity will be dissolved. Until that day, we pray together. Our Father, our Mother, our Parent, our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Dot, dot, dot. Amen. Now be good to one another and go and live peacefully this week. Dance, make love. <laughs>